0: Welcome to First Up, it's Rahina. That's Monday, the 11th of July. Cornethan Rarade Aho. Big show today. We get the latest from Sri Lanka as the country's president and prime minister are set to resign. The Pacific Island Forums are in disarray after Kiribati's 11th hour decision not to take part. We head to Japan where election day has happened under the shadow of the assassination of former prime minister Shinzo Abe. And is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it a boat? Is it a car? What is it? We're going to speak to a group trying to save New Zealand's only airworthy Catalina flying boat. There's probably about 20
1: in the world that uh, is still flying. We know 30 of them that are in museums. So yeah, they're getting a very rare piece. That's for sure.
0: Ten A, Welcome to First Up for the week, yes a lot of rain happening so hopefully all the gutters and all that were sorted out in the last couple of days and you're hunkering down, Is it, it's not quite time to batten down yet, we're just going to hunker, uh, pull the duvet up a little bit further this morning. Well, we begin today uh, in South Africa uh, where at least 14 people have been killed, as you just heard, in a mass shooting at a bar in Soweto. Witnesses say that the group of government entered the bar and began firing
2: at random. The
0: BBC's Andrew Harding has this report.
2: South African police and forensic experts at the scene of what many here are calling a massacre. Gunmen with automatic weapons charged into a busy bar in this poor neighborhood and opened fire, seemingly at random. Two women were injured. The rest of the victims were all young men. Was it a robbery gone wrong? For now, the police are simply calling it a cold-blooded attack. There is shock here, but only at the high death toll.
3: I think this really does reflect the dire state in which our country's failures is at. Um, We don't have visible policing in this area, um, and and hence, you know, there's no electricity in this area which fuels um, the, the crime rates in the country.
2: Another four men died last night in a similar attack in a different town. And last month, 21 teenagers died, possibly from gas or poison, in a bar in the port city of East London. This is a violent country at the best of times, but these murders have contributed to a sense of South Africa losing its way, wrestling with sky high unemployment and deepening inequality.
0: Uh, to the usa now where a couple of big names are set to testify in front of the january 6th committee one of them huge almost can't believe it it's anna burns francis who's with me right now kia ora, how are you
4: <laughs> well, i'm good morning but man i hope i'm not facing that january 6th committee anytime soon
0: well they're getting everybody so you just um grab a jacket because it'll be one day it's like hey what did you even think about it i mean pat cipollone is a name that we will get to know but steve bannon That's been a huge name of of one of the the sort of Trump's main backers or defenders. Tell us about these two people and um, why they're being called to testify, do you think?
4: Yeah, so Steve Bannon, of course, was the um, longtime ally, supporter and strategist Uh, Of Donald Trump and we've seen him continue to perpetrate this myth of the stolen election, the election fraud, so it was a little bit interesting, one might say, that he suddenly prepared to testify in front of the uh, January 6th committee, but it comes after Pat Cipollone has just done his testimony. So he in uh, the last couple of days has done eight hours of testimony in front of that committee and that was kind of a big score for them. He was a big nut to crack because he'd actually refused to turn up. He'd really resisted. He'd ignored the subpoena. But after we heard from that junior staffer, Cassidy Hutchinson, suddenly Pat Cipollone wanted to talk. And we haven't seen Donald Trump criticise anything that Mr. Cipollone said about his, you know, we've seen Donald Trump be quite forceful in his criticism of individuals and their personalities and how they behave. None of that after Pat appeared before the committee. And we might see the same thing happen when Steve Bannon, if he does actually appear, uh, in front of his um, talks with the committee because this might be a bit of a Christmas bauble. Steve Bannon appears to be offering himself up on behalf of Donald Trump. We know the former president is sick of seeing all this bad press about himself all the time. He's made comments that he thinks Republicans should have been involved. What's the way to do it now? Try and get some of your allies to front up to the committee and hopefully have a hearing. Now, Bannon has asked if he can do his testimony live. Uh, he only wants to do it live. Well, no one's got that deal so far. So if he actually follows through, we'll have to wait and see. There's another hearing coming up on Tuesday.
0: It's It's been gripping. It really, really has. Uh, horrible news out of New York City, though, in, in Harlem there. Uh, shootout, 13 weapons used. Uh, I thought New York was tightening gun laws.
4: Well, they were tightening gun laws, but only because gun laws got loosened by the Supreme Court. So, yeah, lethal gunfight in New York City, Uh, Darius Lee, a young man, was the only one shot. 13 guns, 53 bullets, probably only bad aim and a bit of luck that there weren't more fatalities. But authorities are already saying this is going to be the beginning of an increase in gun crime, because when the Supreme Court struck down New York's law, that had formally required anyone carrying a gun to have what was called proper cause, to actually have a legitimate concern or fear for your safety that made you want to carry a gun. Now, you do not need that. So New York has tried to move quite quickly to mitigate it. It's passed laws requiring you to share your social media profiles, just the public version, so that they can go and be looked at. Uh, It's also banned guns from places like Times Square. But we already see shootings in Times Square. So how they are going to police that seems almost impossible. And already, Republicans are saying they're going to fight the changes and they're going to challenge these new rules in court.
0: Mm. um one thing that people don't have to do at twitter apparently is call elon musk hey boss because he's pulled the plug on his offer to buy it for a huge amount of money there what's the fallout (laughs) been from this
4: Yeah, he's not, Santa Claus, after all. The bad news is it's headed to court, right? The good news is there's one winner, the lawyers, because that is the only way this is going to go. Analysts reckon, though, it might be Twitter that has the upper hand. So Musk was always a little bit in doubt as to whether he was actually going to follow through on this offer to buy Twitter. He was putting up 71 billion New Zealand dollars. Um, But, you know, there was a billion dollar penalty if he bailed on it and refused to go through. And that's what he's now trying to do. But it looks like Twitter wants more than that. It seems to be aiming for a forced takeover. It is possible. It has happened a bit in the States in some quite high-profile cases before, and that would be that the court rules Musk has to buy the company. There is a bit of a risk, though, because Musk hasn't got a great reputation for following the rules, right, particularly when it comes to financial and business matters. The other scenario that's being bandied about is that maybe this is Musk's way of forcing Twitter back to the negotiating table because tech companies across the board have seen their values fall quite significantly recently, including Twitter. And so this might still give both parties is what they want, but unfortunately that deal wouldn't give Twitter shareholders uh, much hope and they could then end up going back to court. There is only one winner, I think it's the lawyers.
5: (laughs) It always
0: is, it always is them. Hey Anna, thank you very much uh, for being here for us. Anna Burns Francis there, who is with us uh, out of the USA. Well if you're listening live it is twelve and a half past five here on First Up on RNZ National or you might be listening to us on the podcast. Lucky you. Download First Up the podcast you can listen any day at your convenience. Well we go to Australia here where the federal government has added chefs to its list of priority occupations for migrants due to staffing shortfalls caused by COVID. The country's National Skills Commission is projecting that chefs will be among the fastest growing professions over the next five years, with an anticipated 14% bump in 2026 that will make the profession one of the fastest growing jobs in Australia, if the forecasts are right. The ABC's Case and Ho reports.
6: Hideki Hayashi has been feeding hungry West Australians for 14 years. He survived the pandemic, a challenge that saw a quarter of the country's chefs quit as restaurants struggled with restrictions. But there's renewed demand for chefs and other hospitality staff as the industry rebounds. A lot of restaurants I know are looking for... Uh, kitchen hand, waitress a uh, staff, but uh, at the moment, as a COVID, uh, no one apply. The National Skills Commission is projecting a booming recovery for the sector that will surpass pre-COVID levels. The number of chefs nationally is set to increase by nearly 14 percent, from about 80,000 to more than 90,000 by 2026.
5: Everybody eats. Every week you hear of new restaurants opening.
6: To meet demand, the federal government has added chefs to its list of priority occupations for migrants. I would maybe add just a splash of water. And at this independent training provider, enrolments have more than doubled compared to 2019.
1: I definitely will insist to uh, finish my school and my work. And I, I believe that after the knowledge and the skill, one day I will become a great chef.
6: But Australia's chefs-in-training... I love it! I love it. cooking it bigger Play like a mama, you know? <laughs> ...will need more than a certificate to survive. Here in Chef Hayashi's restaurant, he hopes the trainees will one day join his kitchen. But he's not sure the government's rosy predictions will make his job any easier. It's very easy to find the staff. But wrong staff, not right staff. Yes, it's very hard to find the right staff who has hospitality in mind. Chef Hayashi is looking for quality. Like this. Not quantity.
0: It's quarter past five, Sri Lanka's president is set to resign after the country's economic crisis literally hit home, like actually did. Protesters swarmed the presidential palace, Uh, demanding President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe both step down. Earlier, the president announced his intention to resign this coming Wednesday. Our South Asian correspondent is Kazva Klasra, and I asked what the latest is from Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo.
3: Well, the president has not been seen since yesterday. And uh, in a dramatic move, the president of Sri Lanka has agreed to step down on July 13, 2022. His statement came on the heels of bloodless yet powerful protests across the country against the current regime, which has failed to address the country's economy and inflation. And with the incumbent president resigning on July 13 next week, let me tell you, decades-long rule of a single family will uh, come to an end. And this is what the protesters across uh, Sri Lanka have been demanding since May this year, former president, Mahindra Rajapaksa became a hero among the majority of Sinhalese in 2009 when his government defeated Tamil separatist rebels after years of bitter and bloody civil war. His brother is now the president and he has just, uh, uh, you know, stated that he's going to resign. However, let me tell you, what is interesting is that the resignation of the incumbent president will not solve the economic problem of Sri Lanka which is officially bankrupt now full president of sky. Kair- Petrol diesel is not available across the country, and inflation has hit all time at 55%. That's terrible.
0: That's amazing. Uh, And let's uh, shift over to the subcontinent mainland. The areas of Pakistan have been hit by some incredible heavy flooding there.
3: Yes, unfortunately, heavy floods have killed dozens of Pakistanis and left hundreds of homeless in Pakistan as heavy monsoon spell battered country. In the southern province of Balochistan, which border Iran, fifty-seven people have been killed and many have gone homeless. And this is what we have heard from Ziaullah Langog, the disaster and home affairs advisor to the province, of, province chief minister said on yesterday. And this is terrible. And the bad news are still coming from this part of Pakistan, unfortunately.
0: And it's horrible natural destruction. It's, it's interesting what's going on in Iran. I see they've begun to, it says here that they've begun to use advanced centrifuges to enrich uranium.
3: That's too unfortunately. Iran has begun to use advanced centrifuges to enrich uranium at the underground photo facility, according to an international atomic energy report. The new machines mentioned in the confidential document that were obtained by the international news agency, the writers, have been the object of the concern among the Western states and as they make it easier for the Iranian to shift between enrichment levels and the development, let me tell you very clearly, is likely to sow tension between Iran and the Western countries and also the Middle Eastern countries as well, especially uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia.
0: And finally, why has the Indian government fined Amnesty International about eight million US dollars?
3: Well, that is unfortunate. Unfortunate, let me tell you, India has fined the local arm of Amnesty International nearly eight million US dollars. After the probe into finance, the void said was a part of a witch hunt. Rights groups, let me tell you, have long claimed the face harassment from Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu National Administration for highlighting rights abuse, especially including in disputed territory of Kashmir. Amnesty Local bank were frozen two years back in 2020 as a part of the probe, and financing has uh, uh, prompted the group to lay off staff and halt campaign and the resources across uh, India and also in Kashmir. That's really unfortunate. What this is what I can tell you from this region.
0: It is 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere and you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Coming up, our correspondent Lithium Movono is in Suva as the Pacific Islands uh, Forum gets off to a pretty bumpy start. Also, Glenn Forsyth, speaking about that thing from hamburgers. I've got
2: a lovely bunch
0: of cow they are standing in the rail.
6: Big one, small one, some as big as you Quick, You're to the
0: first upmobile. We need to get to the fresh produce market because joining us for his Monday morning report ahead of a wet old week is the Minister of Fruit and Veggies. He's Glenn Forsyth. Morning to Glenn.
7: Morning well, to Nathan.
0: Lovely to catch you on a Monday. Yeah. Hey, um... Look, the weather obviously is going to be uh, big. A lot of weather chat around this time of the year. How did last week's weather um, affect things? Because obviously in Australia they're very, very, very wet. Will it hit supply issues here in New
7: Zealand because of it? Yeah, the Sydney flood crisis is certainly raising cost of vegetables for Australians. One grower in Camden, Paul Greach, he's been hit three floods this year, washing away one million in turnover. Although New South Wales was not a huge supplier of their winter produce to New Zealand, Queensland shore is, and they were hit too. So demand from New South Wales goes on to Queensland, meaning an export price after this for us becomes astronomical. Strawberries in Bundaberg were barely good enough for jam, and we saw photos of a courgette farm there underwater. water. I mean, courgettes are already over double the normal price now at the markets in Australia. A couple of years ago, we couldn't import a whole host of produce from Queensland because of that mosaic virus. Last year was a flutter due to COVID complications. And this year, or for the rest of winter and early spring for sure, I mean, it's a write-off for affordable Queensland imports for us and survival mode for the Australians. I mean, here are the lines that New Zealand used to get spoilt by from Queensland. Courgettes, beans, capsicums, all melons, cucumbers, strawberries and tomatoes. The thing that strikes me about all of this is food security. We've got to protect our growers from stuff like compliance costs, energy issues, rates, and staff shortages, um, you know, and plus not put concrete and steel on any more fertile land for housing. You know, Because if we run out of fresh vegetables for ourselves in winter, this year has sure proven you know, we wouldn't get it out of Australia.
0: Mm. Hey, I heard a rumour, Right, and you might be able to help me in this, you know that thing from hamburgers, you know beetroot, right? Yes. So I've heard that people are eating it outside of hamburgers. Is this true?
7: Oh, yeah, vegetables. We've got to talk about that, the, the beet. I mean, some great roasting options this week. You go for pumpkin, butternut, orange kumara, and new season yams. Along with the traditional red coloured yams, Halfords out of Fielding also grow an apricot coloured one. Greens, you could try silver bead again, Brussels sprouts, and, and McCain's frozen beans. Wilcox Brothers have their lovely Vivaldi gold tomato, uh, I beg your pardon, potatoes available. And, and they're a bonus as they're washed. They're a pale yellow potato with a velvety texture, making them great for mashing or a boiled potato as they hold their shape. They have a gentle and mild sweet flavour. But during our chat last week with Jay Clark, he said too that their fresh beetroot is in good supply. Always a safe bet in winter, going with in-season root vegetables and not surprising, beetroot is a superfood. Jay quotes, it's amazing for overall health, reducing inflammation and lowering blood pressure. It's also great for gut health. But as you've mentioned, beetroot can be boiled and used in burgers and sandwiches. He roasts them and adds with goat's cheese and walnuts for a lovely winter salad. Um, or, Or you can also grate beets raw, if you wish, or juice them, which are great options as you don't um what do you, you don't lose or destroy any valuable nutrients
0: that way. Yeah. That is a superfood. I, I had one. I heard an ant over the road uh, in a paddock yeah. and I picked up a car and threw it at it. There was there's a that'll <laughs> yeah, help you. Yeah. Hey, tell me this, um That's avocados. Me. They're new seasons avocado <laughs> hitting hitting shops. Where are these new where are they coming from? <laughs>
7: Yeah, we've got those featured in our fruit section I mean, the wait is over. New Zealand naval oranges are starting to come into the market now from the far north. They can be hard to peel, so if your little ones don't mind eating them like they do at half-time during their sports games, just prepare them that way. Also in good supply are Angelese Pears green kiwi fruit, and new season avocados from Motiti Island are coming from there, Nathan. These avocados have been pre-ripened, so no need to squeeze when their skin are that lovely brown green colour. If you're lucky enough to be tall, you can grab, you can grab Grab the unsqueezed ones at the very top of the shelf. Avocados are a superfood too, excellent source of nutrients, beneficial for gut health, may help reduce heart disease risk and a smart choice during pregnancy and breastfeeding, they say. And we can't forget the amazing lemon at their best for us in winter. The main two varieties grown here are the Maya and the Yenbin. The Maya was discovered in China in the 1800s by a guy called Frank may- uh, Maya, hence the name. Then he took it to the US and somewhere along the line it ended up here. The key ones are super juicy with less acid, so that they're great for baking and desserts. Yenbian is more of what they call a true lemon, you know, introduced here in the 80s. They are quite thin skinned and don't contain a lot of seeds. So, great for squeezing onto anything in drinks and with seafood. So, plenty clean lemons, lemons now. You're
0: a beautiful man. Thank you very much, Glenn. There he is, the Minister of Fruit and Veggies. He's got the superfoods for you. Get your beetroots in and uh, a bit of lemons and some new season avos with Glenn Forsyth.
8: Sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life that we
0: call the 11th July. Uh, Trying to sort it into some sort of order to make it easier for you to follow. And birthdays, ye olde birthdays, born on this day in 1274, Robert the Bruce. Also E.B. White, who was Elwyn Brooks White, um, of course the writer of Charlotte's Web, in 1952, but also, I didn't realise, also wrote Stuart Little, you know, 1945, so uh, E.B. Webb was born on this day in 1899, uh, and still with us birthdays, Giorgio Armani turns 88, and it will be a very fashionable birthday, I reckon. Um, I've seen this weird fashion round recently with the, have you seen the new one you know how there was ripped jeans and all that sort of bit there's a new one which is like say a cut from the centre thigh down to the centre shin right down the front of the pants and you'll see the knees poking out no 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 believe me you're going to see it almost looks like they're they're wearing chaps I don't get that one. Uh, a happening on this day, which is pretty cool, 1877 Kate Egbert, uh, Edgar sorry, becomes New Zealand's first woman to graduate and first woman in the British Empire to earn a Bachelor of Arts. Speaking of arts, let's talk about artistic happenings. This day in 1960, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird was published, became a classic, noted for its sensitive treatment of the child's awakening to racism and prejudice in the South. On this day in 1969, David Bowie uh, released the single Space Oddity nine days before Apollo 11 lands on the moon, nice. And on this day in 1981 it was released Donkey Kong. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto was the programmer and in that game Mario had to ascend a construction site while avoiding barrels and fireballs to rescue his girlfriend from Donkey Kong and her name was Pauline. That's the stone industry. history. It's business, it's
9: business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say let's get down to business it's business time. It's business
0: Joining us now from the business team is Mr. Giles Bigford. G'day, Giles. How are you? Good afternoon,
8: Nathan. Well, thank you. Well,
0: well. Now, there's many things we could talk about. Um, <laughs> I, 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 just one of the things uh, which I hope we could um, just touch on here, Giles. So, oil prices, right? And it was a few months ago. I was like, "Oh, it's terrible. It's so... This is why we're you know we have to pass it on to consumers. It's just awful. It's jumped up. Um, the, the
8: price of oil has dropped quite a bit since then. Why isn't the price at the pump dropping? Oh goodness me! I mean, can we just talk about atomic science or something, splitting <laughs> the atom? Something easier? I don't know. Um, p- price of oil: a price, uh, a barrel of Brent crude oil, at the moment, one hundred and seven U.S. dollars a barrel. That's what it is this morning, because um, we don't import oil anymore, crude oil anymore. And so the more uh, relevant price uh, for things that we should be looking at, or the benchmark, is actually the price of refined petrol out of Singapore, uh, which is the refined benchmark, so to speak, in this part of the world. I can't give you that because our internet's uh, broken one of its (laughs) widgets. (laughs) But one of the things is, um, even though uh, oil prices are down, um, so is our dollar. And, of course, the lower the dollar against the U.S., then um, the more expensive our imports are. And so that's one reason you can have a drop in the price of oil, but if the New Zealand dollar falls against the U.S. dollar, then undoubtedly... Um, you know, you're, you're, you're not making that same gain uh, from the price drop. That'll mm. be a factor. Um, part of it is, when was the product bought? Is it the latest product? Is it stuff uh, that's been here a while? So it's the pricing of the product at the time. And, of course, it's just competitive margins, right? Mm. It's, uh, it's the uh, petrol station saying... You know, we can probably afford to leave it where it is at the moment, or, yeah, oh, goodness me, you see the gold Station down the road's dropped it to this, so we better max them for a while. I'm afraid there are many wonders in the world... Trying to find out why your petrol is priced the way it is uh, is probably near the top of the list. They're
0: just going to try and keep it at that price and hope no one notices. Is what they
8: are. I'm oh, um, astounded. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, even one of the cheapest areas that I go to, um, and I've got a car that has to run on 95. The Oof. cheapest is is around three dollars, 15 $16 fifteen uh, sixteen liter. Uh, and if you go to one of the mainstream stations where they don't sort of do the discounts, then it's over three dollars twenty-five, getting up to three thirty a litre. So you can see why people are taking the bus. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Hey, uh,
0: Giles Beckford there uh, with many things to talk about too. The green shoots of recovery uh, and also interest rates as well coming up with the business team report on Morning Report at 10 to 7 today. Well, in Fiji, Pacific Nations are gathering for the Pacific Island Forum with climate change, obviously, and China's increasing presence in the region expected to feature prominently on the agenda. But you may have seen this, getting things off to a really bumpy start was the news yesterday that Kiribati uh, will not be taking part in the forum because. feel sidelined by the larger nations. Joining us from Suva is our correspondent, Lethe Mavono. It's always a pleasure to say, Bulivanaka, how are you? Yeah, I'm,
9: I'm Nathan. It's good to talk to
0: you again. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has. So tell me this, Lethe. So Kiribati's problem here, who are they referring to when they say that there are larger nations that, that they are upset with? <sighs>
9: Well, they're referring, unfortunately, to the Polynesian and the Melanesian blocks of, of the Pacific Forum. They've, they felt un, underrepresented. They felt sidelined when it comes to big decisions. The most recent of which is, of course, the 2019 vote for the current position of Secretary General, which is currently held by Henry Puna, the former Cook Islands Prime Minister, which, um, you know, according to historical movements or the Gentleman's Agreement, as we're all calling it, now should have been given to a Micronesian candidate
0: Ah, So, um, and obviously look, climate change, a huge thing um, for, for the Pacific Islands, particularly with the rising sea levels um, I, I know it's expected to be discussed with some urgency Why do vulnerable island nations want to, what do they want to see achieved with this?
9: Well, they want for their neighbours, for their, you know, siblings, uh, to to really make good of all of the narrative around being there for the climate change. Uh, uh, uh space in the Pacific about being there for the Pacific neighbours. What they want is for Australia to reduce their fossil fuel extraction. That, In a very simple way, that's what they would like. Now Australia, of course, with this new government, has committed to uh, better targets, has committed to more support, has committed to more money. But what the Pacific Island nations really want is Australia to stop subsidising coal and fuel uh, extracts, and they want for the Australian government to really say, fine, we will do less of this.
0: Lithi, I found it really interesting, the reporting on, on China's influence in the Pacific. So New Zealand and Australia seemed very worried about this, uh, about as security goes. But can you just tell us, are participants at the forum, uh, are they broadly aligned uh, with with our views on China's influence in the region, or do some nations actually welcome China's influence? And if they do, what are the things that China does for these nations that perhaps Australia and New Zealand are
9: not? Listen, in the Pacific people see China as a friend. People see China for the mostly infrastructural support that the Chinese government has given to Pacific Island countries over the past several years. Now, people know that China is not a friend of the Western Allies. that Pacific has, of course, had historical relationships for a long time. But what they would like is for that kind of geopolitical movement and that kind of uh, conversation and warring that happens outside of the Pacific to not be part of the decisions that all of these foreign powers take in the Pacific. So, for example, they would like to continue a relationship with China and do the same with their Western allies. I mean, there's not much of an understanding of the differences in philosophies, the differences in government styles, for example, and also the human rights abuses that China uh, is is known for. But what people would like to is for our Western allies to come to the table without having the conversation around China looming over them.
0: Yeah, Lethe, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you very much. We will keep our eyes on the Pacific Island Forum here at First Up. It's a
6: bit
0: like uh, Cortez meeting Montezuma. Uh, but it was uh, Kyrgios versus Djokovic. One of them had to win. Who won, Barry? Oh, kia to Barry. Barry uh, from uh, RNZ Sports Desk, of course. Barry Guy, who, who won in that lovable final? Uh, Djokovic. <laughs> oh, did he?
5: Yeah. In oh. four.
0: Uh <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> What a great! Hey, I read a great. I read this great stat. In the last two decades, here's the people that have won the Wimbledon men's final: Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. That's it. In two yep. decades, come on, men's tennis! Come in, on.
5: In the last four years, it's been Djokovic, 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 Djokovic. <laughs> uh, he's now got seven. I think one behind Roger, uh, uh, and he's now one behind um, uh, Rafa. Ah, yeah. Can't deny him. I mean, no. he, had, he had a lot of things go his way. He had a couple of good uh, wins in the quarterfinals and the the semifinals. Um, uh, I, I would have loved it if if Nick Kyrgios had won. i listening to I the uh, so. oh, to the media conference after that. Hey Nathan, I've just um, some. I know uh, some people may be waking up a bit depressed from the result uh, over the weekend, but um, the Black Caps have come back from the brink and oh. beaten Ireland. I came in, and they were chasing 301 to beat Ireland. This is the first one day are in Dublin. Yeah. And the Black Caps were 150 for six. And Michael Bracewell, coming in at number seven, has scored an unbeaten 127, including hitting about 24 off the last 10 balls or something. And the Black Caps have got up and won with, I think it's one ball to spare. Wow! So, congrats. We were about we were facing a double defeat to Ireland over the weekend, and uh, thanks to uh, Mr. Michael Bracewell, uh, Martin Guptill scored some runs up at the top, but. Um yeah, that sort of lifted my day, really. Well, that is good. Because I was going to
0: say, they, uh, Ireland own New Zealand because uh, the Sky Tower was lit up green on the way in this morning just to rub it in. Nice, uh, nice. I three. mean, it,
5: it does go to show that uh, you, um, you struggle to win games when you've only got 13 or 14 players on the yeah. field. <laughs> but um, sometimes, you know, you do sort of wonder... Um, we've gone back a few years where it seems sometimes the All Blacks don't have... Uh, uh, a change of sort of plan or something, or 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 an approach. We, I mean, it's a bit difficult. I, I know when you know you you couldn't get that forward momentum. We were better nowhere.
0: We we yeah. were better nowhere. We we certainly missed Sam Whitelock in the scrum, yep. uh, which I think he's wildly underrated, and you never hear that mentioned. But you have a look when he's scrumming and when yep. he's not. You know, like your props act very differently when you've got there. I don't know what it is about him, but there's yep. something about what he does. There was definitely that, and then. Every single pass that came, sure, Aaron Smith was clearing them, but he's under pressure as he goes, and yeah. you know, like like it's very hard to get your high kicks on pinpoint when you haven't got time to do them. So it yeah, was, uh, I think they also missed
5: um, Ardy as well. Oh, the influence oh he has, and also <laughs> when you're down a player, the the Irish defence, you know, they only have to defend oh, the sort of the, the inside channel because yeah. the All Blacks are never going to have an overlap. They um, were so good.
0: Ireland, yeah. Ireland were great. They were the yep. better. Than, they were better than us everywhere. They had that wonderful little Ford pod they were running with, where the guy running at the tackler, and then you know, right. At, you know, as soon as our tackler makes the decision, there's a late ha ha as he does a little pass off to his shoulder and mm. through. The, they cut cutting gaps everywhere. It was beautifully done. So I, I think, and it was interesting to see a change of tune in some of the reporting last week. It was like, wow, look, there was a win, What do you think now? And then mm. yesterday it was a bit vinger out in and some of the uh, some of the reporting. I thought Barry.
5: Yeah, um, you know what can you what can you say? Um, the third test comes around. If the if the All Blacks struggle, hmm. what's going to happen? We're a bit late. When's the World Cup next year? Yeah, it is um, next year. Um, yeah, and- I don't I, I don't know. But then again, the All Blacks if everyone stays on the field and you know they get things rolling and Sam Whitelock's back, um, they could well win that easily. I, you know, it's a
0: well, it is. It is actually quite exciting. It's yeah. got
5: anticipation back. There
0: was a procession, bit there for a while where we were so mm. so good. Um, but that's all right. That's sport. We can
5: we can do that, can't we? Yeah. In England, England came back, beat Australia. The Wales, yeah. Wales had a win. Wales Scotland had a win. Japan oh. almost beat France. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a big old weekend. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, yeah, the cricket. And that just could be our lead this morning. Well ve- done, the uh, Black Caps.
0: Very quickly on Friday before we went away, Barry had been out to see Thor the night before. Oh, yeah. I went on Friday. I loved it. I giggled yep. and laughed the whole way through. It had a very, yep. very
5: good time. Yep. Loved it. Well done, bro. It's good fun.
0: Cheers. There we go. <laughs> Thank you very much, Barry Guy there from the RNZ Sports Desk, and also we're throwing a little bit of uh, movie reviews for you just to keep it a little cultural here at First Up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Djokovic, popular winner here. It is, uh, we'll call it 17 to 6, and Nathan Radity here at first up on RNZ National. So between now and 6, we'll cross to Japan, which is a country obviously still in shock at the assassination of their former Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. And uh, is it a plane or is it a boat? We're going to hear from a, what is that, a float? I guess? Uh, we hear from a group trying to keep New Zealand's only airworthy Catalina flying boat flying for our skies, uh, in our skies. <laughs> The Professionals of RNZ are the Morning Report team. They are here after six, and it's Susie Ferguson, who is here now. Kia ora, Susie. How are you?
9: Oh, kia ora. I'm well. How are you? How was the weekend? I, it was
0: It was good. I went out to the movies on Friday night with the wearing, like, two masks. Mm-hmm. It was great, but I um, <laughs> had, a, had a wonderful time at Thor. It was funny. Oh. Um, I found a, a book that someone sent to me, Pepper Pig in Scots. Have yes.
9: you got that? Isn't it fantastic? I, uh, do you know, I haven't got it, but I did see something on Twitter about how someone had bought it in Scots by mistake and felt it was better.
0: It's way better. Oh. No, we can fly awa up to the sky in or on our unicorn, cheered pepper. This is great. I'm going that to practice great. this to get to get it going. It's so good. I'm going to yeah. find it. I'm going to find it. We'll get you one. There we go. Thank Susie, you. what is happening on Morning
9: Report today? Well, we're going to be talking about the skyroting skyrocketing number of COVID cases. Hospi- Hospitalisations are now at the highest level since April. The Prime Minister on the program, of course, just after seven o'clock, we will be speaking about that with her. Uh, Of course, this coming as the Association of General Surgeons also saying the number of surgeries being deferred has never been so bad. So certainly pressures in the health system. Also, Kiribati completely withdrawing from the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, And also, here's one that... It sounds pretty interesting, this. Mm -hmm. An RNZ investigation reveals how dangerous it is to inhale other people's breath in crowded places. Uh, moist breath soon that's <laughs> all I'm saying
0: Okay. it's all coming up after 6 thank you very much Susie Ferguson there uh, with the uh, with what's happening there on Morning Report watch your breaths well New Zealand's only airworthy Catalina flying boat is up for sale and a group of volunteers is trying to raise the money to keep it in the country. The plane was built in Canada in 1944. It's been in New Zealand for 28 years. It struggled to earn its keep after a couple of years of not being able to attend air shows and fly tourists. Businessman Neil Young is leading a syndicate hoping to buy the 78-year-old flying boat. He spoke with First Up producer Jeremy Parkinson.
1: I'm trying to put a, a group together to take over or make it. Uh, syndicate. There's the value of the aircraft. It's uh, If you buy a, a cruddy one, it's uh, probably three to four hundred grand. If you buy a really top line one you can pay over in the US uh, a couple of million for it. But uh, hopefully I can get a group together that we can um, put a package together so we can maintain it back, still keep it in New Zealand.
5: So what sort of upkeep every year? How much money does it need to keep this uh, plane in an airworthy condition?
1: Between one and two hundred thousand a year.
5: Basically, you're a group of volunteers who would uh, who would continue to uh, work on this every weekend or whatever, just kind of keeping it all rearing to go.
1: Yes, that's the aim. We've uh, recently taken over Pacific Aerospace in Hamilton, so we can base it at the Hamilton Airport, Mercer Airport, which we own. And um, also we can base it where it used to be at Warbirds, uh, Ardmore here.
5: And so you've had um, quite a bit of interest in getting a syndicate together to purchase the aircraft?
1: Yes, quite a, quite a bit of the, uh, the original syndicate uh, keen on, on staying in. And uh, I've had other people from the outside wanting to um, help in whatever way they can. Obviously, the biggest help is, is cash. Yeah, over the last four years, we've had the wing off the Catalina at uh, New Plymouth and uh, doing a major rebuild. And uh, now uh, COVID has hit. And uh, we operate on our, our plane by uh, a cost share basis, the same as uh, the warbirds. The cost is around between four and a half thousand and five thousand dollars an hour. The cost to run this thing, not being able to fly or go to air shows and get people on board and show them our beautiful beast. Yes, it's come to a stage where the preservation society said, okay, we're the next legacy. It'll be, it'll be passed on to. So, there
5: are other Catalinas in New Zealand, but they are in static displays.
1: There's only ones on uh, I know of, and that's at Taronga. Right. But yeah, during the war, the uh, New Zealand government had at uh, least uh, fifty-six, I think, fifty-six uh, of the. But they went uh, amphibious; they were struck the um, flying boats, and they were um, all through the war and um, based, killing in a bay, I think, up there at Hobsonville. But um, well, the history is there was three thousand five, three thousand two hundred of these planes built, and four different countries they, in the were built. For the Russians, under licence, yeah, there's probably about 20 in the world that are uh, still flying. Uh, we know 30 of them that are in museums. So, yeah, they're getting a very rare, rare piece, that's for sure. How long
5: will it be before you are able to secure a deal?
1: Well, obviously, the group that uh, we're involved with uh, would like to see it uh, stay in New Zealand. But um, if somebody comes from, uh, from overseas and uh, puts in a, uh, a big offer, we well, want the plane to stay in New Zealand, but... Uh, disappearing overseas
0: that's Neil Young hoping to keep our in the airworthy Catalina flying boat here in Aotearoa. It is nine minutes to six. Japan is a nation in mourning after the assassination of its longest serving Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. So, Mr. Abe died in hospital on Friday morning after being shot while speaking at a political campaign uh, event. Of course, it was election day yesterday for electing uh, Japan's upper house. Our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, kindly agreed to start very late for us uh, to bring us the latest on the election and also the investigation into Mr. Abe's assassination. So I asked him what he knew about the election results.
10: Yeah, the election results have just uh, wrapping up here is the upper house elections and a uh, significant election too, um, because a lot is on the line here. So the ruling block ldp uh, Cometa coalition has increased their majority of the upper house here by at least four seats. They have 143 outright majority. The opposing block has lost uh, about 11 seats uh, on the last election. Mm. Um, they had 93 then, um, but there's still 12 undecided uh, at the moment and not long to go, so we're going to get the final result pretty soon. What we do know is that the LDP coalition is firmly in control of both houses, uh, the lower house and the upper house, and uh, Prime Minister Kishida has parliamentary security for at least three years. The other thing is that across four parties in the upper house, it's the ruling bloc and two opposition parties, there is now enough support to change the Constitution, will begin the process of changing the Constitution. The Japanese Constitution has never been changed in 75 years. It was put in place while the Americans, um, you know, were still in control of the country in 1947. And what Shinzo Abe wanted to do and what the current regime wants to do is change Article 9. That's the article that bans Japan from having an army, and it bans Japan from being able to wage a war. They want to be able to do these things. So if they can uh, pass uh, a motion in the House or pass a bill in the House to change the Constitution, there's the chance it could go to a referendum sometime in the coming years.
0: Oh, that's that is huge then. I mean, gosh, that was one of the things I always remember from school, learning about, you know, no army For Japan. So I'll keep an eye out on that. Now, you, you mentioned there about the former Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, who, you know, of course we saw was assassinated the other day. Was it a weird mood for Japan going to have an election just days after that?
10: Uh, It is strange. Um, It's not a normal time. (laughs) Um, But they legally had to. Um, You know, there was a lot of uh, brouhaha from Prime Minister Kishida the other day about we must defend democracy and we will not let this stop us having an election. Well, he was legally obligated to have the election. Um, And uh, it was a weird mood, um, but it happened. And I I think uh, in 1980, uh, the the prime minister died about ten days before uh, the election back then and they went ahead and it was a landslide for for the LDP but then again it usually is um, and I think I think to remember about Abe is that. Uh, even though he was no longer prime minister and hadn't been for about two years, he had control of the LDP. He he was um, a Kauri in, in that party. Um, he led the largest faction of the LDP, called the Abe faction, about a quarter of the members, including the chief cabinet secretary and the chairman of the parliament, the Diet, were both part of the Abe, fac- uh, the Abe faction. So that's cabinet and the Diet who are kind of following Abe's um, policy roadmap. Uh, his absence is going to create a huge power vacuum inside the LDP and kind of a messy situation for Kishida, um, who probably also did not look so happy tonight despite the huge uh, win for his party. Chris, can you just explain? Because I'm thinking here, when you see a, a public figure
0: assassinated, there has to be a building resentment that's that's come up, you know, that doesn't just happen because I don't like that guy's shoes, you know, there's got to be years of something. What sort of person was Shinzo Abe? Because I've, you know, I've read that some people said, oh, it's such a shame that a other people going, no, this
10: man was horrible. he was you know he was like a Trump. What was he like? Um well, he was a very right-wing politician. um I, I think, uh, domestically, if we just clarify what that means, you know, J- Japan has a very uh, strong social security system. Um, it has a very strong health system with health insurance and, um, you know, a- and a lot of community support there. And he was there was no interest at all from the LDP or from Shinzo Abe under his prime ministership at changing any of that. But internationally, in terms of foreign policy, he was a very right-wing politician. Um, you know, his grandfather as well, uh, much like him, was was kind of a a nationalist, Um, maybe you could even say an ultra-nationalist. Shinzo Abe um, was an apologist for Japan's documented war crimes in Asia, saying they're fabricated or exaggerated at times. Um, He refused to acknowledge Japan's enforced sexual slavery of Korean uh, women during World War II and disavowed the uh, 1993 Act, which apologized for comfort women. He strongly supported ongoing U.S. presence in the historically colonized Okinawa. And relocated an army base there, despite 70% opposition in a referendum. He also mobilized the military, um, and you know, in in 2015, and has, I guess, posthumously succeeded uh, to this point in getting a two-thirds majority in in the Diet to change the constitution to allow Japan to have an army again. Um, so he, I, I've seen. Uh, articles saying that he was hawkish. I would say he was more than hawkish. I would say he was quite aggressive in terms of his foreign policy. Um, And he was a very divisive figure here because uh, a lot of people have said they didn't vote for him. They didn't support his policies. um, But, you know, of course, assassination is appalling and atrocious and there's a great deal of mourning going on.
2: What, What
0: sort of sentence awaits the gunman, do you think?
10: Japan does have capital punishment. I have uh, heard and read that they might not, the prosecutors might not go after that because there was only one victim. Um, You might remember the Sarin attacks in 1995. The perpetrators of that um, got, you know, um, the death sentence. Um, But you could surely be looking um, at prosecutors probably be looking at life in prison at the very least for this.
0: That's Chris Gilbert, who's with us out of Tokyo every week here at uh, First Up. And that is our program for today. There's many things that have been mentioned, and we always love getting your feedback in. Thank you very much for that. On 2101, they, they came in this morning. School holidays mean uh, petrol is high price. Yeah, you're right. I just wish it would fall down. That's the thing. You know, as soon as it goes up, they're like, oh, we have to pay more. We have to pass it on to our consumers. And then when the consumers go, hey, um, can, uh, the prices dropped. Like, oh, no, it's because we ordered it ages ago. That old chestnut. Uh, another one, the Sky Tower is Green uh, this morning for Eid. Oh, okay, because I thought it was because Ireland own us. So fear not. And uh, Wendy's enjoying the show in the morning. So it's a nice way to wake up. Well, good. I'm uh, sorry you have to be awake at this time of the day, Wendy, but pleased to be here with you, everyone. Just a request from me: can we can we can we go with the masks just when we need them? You know what I mean? Indoor settings and those as well. Can we just get back to a bit of that, please? Remember the the spike in cases. Someone to get it sick. Morning reporters next with Susie and Corrin from all of us here. At First up, have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears.
6: Apopo. Wow.